The contents of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. to another edition of Health Kick. I'm Tim Borum. Well, there are certainly a lot of nasty diseases out there, and we're certainly not talking just about COVID. And things are made much worse for patients when there are no available treatments, and when no one actually knows what causes the condition in the first place. That's the case with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF. And that's the condition that causes scarring of the lungs and a gradual deterioration of lung function. The disease is not exactly common, but not exactly rare either. About 300,000 people live with IPF globally, and about 40,000 will die in any given year. Uh, And the the life expectancy uh, post-diagnosis is pretty poor. It's uh, less than uh, four years. Uh, Now... Enter the ASX-listed Adulta, which reckons it's onto something with its so-called eye-bodies, uh, which kind of uh, souped-up versions of uh, human antibodies. Um, now, I've got Adulta Chief Executive Tim Oldham with me to tell me more about the company's lead program, which is called AD214. Uh, welcome, uh, Tim. Thanks for having me, Tim. Good to speak with you today. Excellent. Uh, so just uh, starting at the start, Tim, um, there's a, a shark angle uh, in all of this in that uh, AD214 mimics the antibodies of these uh, predators of the uh, oceans and, and sharks are pretty robust creatures. So, so that's a good thing. Um, so, so tell me more about what uh, eye bodies actually are. So eye bodies were discovered, as you mentioned, from basic research into the shark immune system. Uh, Antibodies have revolutionized medicine since they first hit clinical use about 30 years ago. Uh, And and traditional human antibodies are very large molecules, um, classically thought of as Y-shaped with with the business end, if you like, that's specific to a particular disease or target or what we call an antigen, right at the tips of those Ys. Now, it turns out that these antibodies have been amazing, but they can't do everything. And... People have been looking for novel formats and what have been called fragment or smaller antibodies for some time. And it turns out that sharks and camels, ironically, uh, through different evolutionary pathways apparently, have what are called single domain antibodies. And these are much smaller versions uh, of antibodies that have uh, focused just on that unique binding domain at the top end of the wires of traditional human antibodies. Uh, And... These shark and camelid antibodies are what's known as single domain antibodies, and they have a unique structure to that binding domain that makes them better suited to targeting what we call difficult to drug targets. So they're very long and flexible binding loops, which mean they can engage with a much greater degree of specificity and selectivity than a traditional human antibody. Uh, And this means we think at least that we can use these to address some more challenging drug targets that traditional antibodies have struggled with. 
And now what we've done with our eye bodies is actually turned them into a human molecule. So rather than using a shark, the shark uh, scaffold itself, we found a human protein that mimicked that shark scaffold, and we use that for our eye bodies. Yeah, okay. So, so you're not out there rounding up camels and and, and sharks to uh, to obtain the uh, to to obtain the product. Um, so it sounds it sounds like these eye bodies can get into sort of the body's nooks and crannies, which other candidates can't. That's right. And certainly we've gone on from the days of having to immunise sharks, which uh, some, some people in the field are still doing. But uh, no, we, uh, we have used synthetic biology to produce a, a library of 10 billion eye bodies and we screen that library against targets that we're interested in. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. Uh, now, in essence, uh, you're, you're all about uh, fibrosis, aren't you, or antifibrosis? Uh, Look, our first eye body, uh, yes, has been developed as an antifibrotic. Uh, it is against scarring of organs, as you mentioned, and we have a particular focus on idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, and, and we are developing our eye body platform against uh, fibrotic diseases, inflammatory diseases, and cancer for our internal pipeline, and we then partner with other companies to develop uh, against other types of targets. So we see the platform as actually being something that can develop multiple assets, multiple drug products in a whole wide range of different areas. But yes, our particular focus is on uh, inflammation oncology and our lead asset in fibrosis. Yeah, okay. And initially, at least, you're, you're focusing on IPF in particular in a That's clinical correct. test. Yeah, That's okay. Correct, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so why the focus on uh, IPF, Tim? So... Fibrotic diseases are pretty widespread. They affect about 50% of most diseases today have a fibrotic component. And that comes, as you would expect, from scarring. Uh, any kind of injury leads to scarring. We know that when we cut ourselves. Yes. Uh, we also know that when that scar forms, that you get stiffness, um, pulling of the skin, and on our skin, that's reasonably cosmetic and we don't worry about it too much. But you can imagine if that happens in an internal organ, you get massive dysfunction of the organ, which is what happens in fibrosis in the lungs. Now, it turns out that the lungs and uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis in particular uh, is, a, is a reasonably well understood disease from a clinical perspective. Um, we know what happens. We don't know why. That's why it's called idiopathic. We don't know what causes it. Yes. Uh, but, it's, but it's a reasonably accessible organ to study. Um, it doesn't have some of the complications of other fibrotic diseases in other organs like the liver where you've got lots of other metabolic disease complications going on. So it becomes a bit easier to study. Uh, and it happens to be a very, very high unmet need. We only have two drugs for IPF approved today. They're approved about 2014. Uh, they slow the rate of decline but that's all. There's very limited evidence that they actually extend life. And the side effects are pretty nasty. And 25 to 30% of patients can't tolerate the drugs for more than about 12 months. So for the four years of the median survival for patients from diagnosis, they're three of those, they're not on therapy. Yeah, okay. And I presume these drugs sort of just have a different, completely different uh, mechanism of action. Yes, one of them, we actually don't know how it works at all. Um, the other one, we do have a, a, a somewhat of an understanding of, of how it works. And fibrosis, like cancer, is actually a very complicated disease mechanism. There are multiple different pathways that are involved, and we actually think that there are going to need to be multiple drugs with multiple modes of action in order to be 
ultimately effective against fibrosis generally and IPF in particular. Uh, so there are a number of companies that are developing drugs against uh, IPF. Uh, we are the only one targeting our particular pathway. So we're what's called a first-in-class molecule, uh, which is really important uh, from a partnering point of view because drug companies are always looking for something that's the first drug in, in a particular pathway of disease. And it also means that we're well set up regardless of which of the competing products uh, come to market to be used in combination with them in the long run. Yeah, okay. Okay, great. All right. And, and uh, just in the clinic, uh, you, you recently launched a, a phase one trial of, uh, I think, about 21 healthy patients. Uh, can you tell us more about how that's going? Yes, yeah, so we started our first ever clinical trial in July uh, 2020. And this was a huge moment for us, uh, not just for this drug itself, but also for the company as a whole. And perhaps we can talk about that later on. Uh, but the, the trial so far has started in healthy volunteers, uh, as most uh, first-in-human trials do. We are planning about 40 patients in this arm of the trial, and we've so far treated 21 at four different dose levels. So we're through four dose levels. We've got three to go. Uh, so far, we've had uh, a really good safety profile. We've had uh, no adverse events of clinical concern to the Drug Safety Monitoring Committee. Uh, and we've just dosed the first couple of patients in the next dose level. Um, and so far during the during this dose limiting adverse event observation window, there have been no signals there either. So, so we're really pleased with the safety profile so far, um, and although we aren't particularly surprised given the great safety profile we had in our preclinical studies. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and, and so, and, but but and in terms of efficacy, what 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 sort of evidence are you relying on t to date that that the drug might actually uh, work? So it's safe and it works. So in our preclinical data, we've done a lot of work trying to unpick the mechanism of action and really understand uh, how this molecule might work and how the receptor that we're blocking impacts disease. The pivotal data that we relied on is a, a mouse model of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, where we use a, a chemical to induce fibrosis in the lungs of the mice. And we then treat the mice with a variety of agents, including AD214 and, and the competitor drugs that are on the market. And in that model, we demonstrated that, a wide, that at a wide range of dose levels, we were actually able to limit uh, or even halt the progression of fibrotic diseases in these mice. So that's the pivotal preclinical data that we, we're relying on. In the human clinical studies, phase one is all about safety. Uh, and sure. so it's very unusual to get uh, a signal of efficacy. What we are looking at at this point in the healthy volunteers is what we call receptor occupancy. Uh, so this is the amount of time that the, the receptor that we're targeting is actually blocked by our drug. Um, and in our non-human primate preclinical studies, we found that the receptor occupancy actually lasted a lot longer than the circulating uh, half-life of the drug in, in the bloodstream, in the serum of the blood, which is actually great news because it means we can have a pharmacological effect potentially that lasts a lot longer than the simple um, duration of circulation in the blood. Uh, we don't have uh, a lot of that data yet from the phase one program. Um, uh, so far, it's it's online with what we'd have expected. So, so far, we're pleased on that front. Next year, 2021, we'll move from the healthy volunteers into patients. And this is a, a not a not necessarily normal uh, in phase one programs. Often they're all done in, in healthy volunteers. But in our case, we've been able to move into patients earlier. And we've done that for a couple of reasons. One, the receptor that we're targeting 
uh, is not present in the lungs of healthy individuals, but it is in the presence of uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So what we want to do is understand the effect of that drug, uh, of that increased receptor population on the properties of the drug, on its receptor occupancy and, and pharmacokinetics. Uh, and we're developing a radio-labeled version of the drug so that we can do what's called PET imaging and we can actually see the drug in the lungs of the patients and measure how long it stays there because obviously we can't uh, biopsy the lungs particularly easily for this disease. Uh, and so that's what we've got coming ahead for us in 2021. Uh, in, uh, in, in the meantime, you've got a, a program with uh, the healthcare giant GE Healthcare, haven't you? We do, Tim. The collaboration with GE is an example of the second half of our business model, which is to partner with biopharmaceutical companies around the world uh, to bring our eye-body technology to bear on targets of interest to them uh, in a co-development arrangement. So unlike AD214, which is wholly owned by Adalta uh, and is funded by us and is a target that we've selected, in GE's case, they've brought us a target. In their case, it's called Granzyme B. And we are discovering eyebodies against that, that they can then go ahead to develop and use as imaging agents uh, for immuno-oncology. Uh, so Granzyme B is a, what's called a biomarker of activity of a new class of drugs against cancer called checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, and GE want to be able to image that uh, molecule so that they can tell when these new classes of drugs are actually working. Okay. And is GE uh, funding uh, th th this work itself? Yes, that's the, the beauty of this side of our business model, that we essentially get new drugs into our target for much lower financial risk. And in GE's case, they've paid us uh, over a million dollars uh, up to the 30th of September 2020. Um, and that's in the form of uh, access fees uh, and upfronts for access to the iBody pipeline, but also covering our discovery costs. Okay, okay. Uh, speaking of, so saying we're speaking of money, you, uh, as a company, you, you raised a tad over uh, $8 million in a capital raising uh, recently. Uh, is, that, um, is that sort of enough to uh, get you uh, beyond uh, phase one and in, in, into the pointy end of things? It certainly gets us into what we'd see as the pointy end of things. Really, the, the raise we've just completed in uh, the first quarter of fiscal year 21 was designed to turbocharge our growth strategy. So I joined Adalta a year ago and I joined because I thought there was enormous potential to produce many, many drugs from this iBody platform. Uh, we've been really focused on getting AD214 into the clinic and that provides the catalyst for being much more attractive to both partners like GE, uh, but also to uh, pharma companies down the track for partnering AD214 and, and other molecules we might develop ourselves. So the capital we've raised is not just about getting the phase one program completed for AD214, um, albeit we'll get a very, very long way down the track with that. It's also about implementing that growth strategy and adding additional molecules to the pipeline. So that money should get us through to the back end of 2021. And in that time, we will uh, complete, obviously, the healthy volunteer component of AD214's phase one clinical trials. We'll have commenced the uh, patient cohorts of uh, AD214 phase one trials, and we'll have the first PET images from those, uh, from those patients. We also expect to have added two more molecules into internal discovery, or two more targets into internal discovery. 
and we're anticipating having another deal to go alongside the GE deal on the uh, co-development side of the transaction. So, so lots to be done with that uh, with that capital we've just raised, and and lots of milestones coming up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. And so, so with the other targets, what uh, what uh, what sort of things are you uh, looking at? So we've hit more than 20 different molecules or 20 different receptor targets with, uh, with their iBody platform over time. Many of those were, were simply proof of concept, but some of those may be interesting therapeutic targets in their own right. So we're currently screening those and they cover a wide range of, of target classes. Uh, beyond that, we'd be looking at a focus area around a family called G-protein coupled receptors in the fields of fibrosis, inflammation and oncology. Uh, we're choosing these G-protein coupled receptors because they are in a family of drugs that are, or family of receptors that are ubiquitous and involved in many, many different diseases. There's over 400 of them uh, in humans, and we've so far only drugged about 100 of them. Uh, and they're also very, very complicated uh, that need the uh, specific features of the eye body to drug them effectively. So they, they, they come in families that are very similar to each other. We need to be able to discriminate them. They're involved in multiple biochemical pathways. We need to be able to select just one to block or to turn on. And so these features are, are, are ideally suited to the eye body capabilities, and that's where we'll be looking. Yeah, okay, okay. And, and you're doing a bit of work uh, with COVID, aren't you, which uh, which has um, got uh, um, it, it, there, there's certainly a um, fibrosis angle to, uh, to COVID, isn't there? We believe there will be. All the evidence suggests that there is going to be an increased burden of fibrotic disease, uh, pulmonary fibrosis particularly, but also possibly in other organs as a result of COVID infection. Um, it's unfortunate that people are not really thinking about this too much. Um, you know, people think about the acute phase of the disease, and that's probably appropriate right now. But when we worry about the consequences of COVID, even in the 99% of people who recover from it and um, don't have particularly severe disease, all the evidence we've seen, both anecdotally and from SARS and MERS in previous uh, uh, outbreaks, we can see that patients are going to have respiratory difficulties for an extended period of time. Uh, there's lots of evidence that they will have fibrotic uh, lesions or damage to their lungs. There's lots of evidence that for three, six months long uh, after infection that they will still have respiratory challenges. Uh, we're hearing the term COVID long-termers, and this refers to these long-term effects. So unfortunately, and particularly this is getting disturbing now that we've got so many cases and continue to grow around the world, we expect that there's going to be an increased emphasis or increased incidence of fibrotic disease post-COVID. Uh, so we're not working on COVID um, therapies, but what we are looking at closely is opportunities to uh, potentially deploy AD214 and the radio-labeled PET version that we're developing of it uh, to at least understand and then potentially treat and prevent the COVID-related side effects of the fibrosis-related side effects of COVID infections. Yeah, okay. So you're interested in these, as I say, that these long-term effects uh long after the patient has uh, survived the uh, initial episode. That's right. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and is your work sort of extensive at the moment? Are, are you sort of actively uh, looking at things on, on the COVID side or is it perhaps more sort of proof of concept? It's very, it's, it's very much on the, on the drawing board at this point in time. Um, yeah, we made a decision when COVID first hit that um, we could choose to divert all our resources to try and find... 
another cure to COVID or we could keep developing AD214, which is what we told our investors that we would do. And we couldn't, we couldn't make that pivot um, simply because we didn't have the financial resources or the, or the scientific resources available to us at the time. But we've been watching very, very closely um, our, our key opinion leaders and the principal investigators on our clinical trials and our key our clinical advisors are all intimately involved as pulmonary physicians with, with the COVID landscape. So they're giving us some good guidance. Um, we don't have an active program right now. Uh, but we're certainly seeking uh, sources of funding and collaborators who can help us do that. But we actually need everyone to have enough breathing space post-acute phase of, of COVID to actually start thinking about these long-term effects um, in order to be able to actually get access to the, the patient uh, pools that we need to do any meaningful work in this area. Yeah, okay, okay, terrific. Um, and what's your background, by the way, Tim? You, uh, you've, uh, you, you came on board uh, last year, uh, I think you, you, you've got quite a varied uh, sort of uh, commercial background in uh, uh, the uh, biotech sphere, haven't you? Yes, at, at a core, the common theme that runs through my career is really about building building new businesses in, in cutting-edge geographies or therapeutic areas or technologies, and I've done that for, for over 20 years. Um, you know, my background's in, in chemistry and law, and I was a management consultant for a period of time before I decided that I really needed to build real products rather than uh, advise other people how to do it. Um, I joined what was then Maine Pharmaceuticals and spent a long time in, in Europe um, in building what was the fastest growing business unit for, for Maine at the time. I was also working heavily in biosimilars at that space, which is really where I got interested in protein therapeutics. Uh, came back and ran Asia Pacific for Hospira once the uh, once they acquired uh, Maine and spent a lot of time in Japan, Korea, and China, which are uh, increasingly important pharmaceutical markets uh, for Australia and for the world. Um, joined the small end of town as the CEO of uh, Cell Therapies, which is a contract manufacturer of cell and gene therapies out of Peter Mac. Uh, and then joined uh, Adalto after a few um, you know, other uh, smaller roles in between. Excellent. All right. Well, look, uh, good luck with uh, getting a uh, therapy to market. It's, uh, there's obviously a, a screaming uh, a need for one, uh, uh, particularly with um, IPF. So uh, th thanks for dropping in, and uh, I'll never be scared of sharks again. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Thanks, Jim.